Hey everyone, my guest today is Emily Summers, who is an actress, model, writer, producer, and story analyst. She was a recurring guest star on the most recent season of Westworld and is a writer and producer of the upcoming indie movie, Into the Valley. Emily, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you've done a lot of interesting stuff. And when I was preparing for this, I was trying to figure out where to start. And I think a fun place to start might be something you once mentioned in another interview, uh, which is you said when you were 11, you saw Les Miserables when you were in New York with your, with your dad. And that really inspired you to get into musical theater, which sort of led you down this path. Um, I've never seen the Broadway show, but I love the movie. And so I'm curious, what about that show inspired you? That's a great question. So I'd never seen a live Broadway show before. So it was my first time in New York City and my first time seeing a Broadway musical or a play. And specifically, there was a little girl who played the role of Cosette, which you've seen the movie, so mm-hmm. you're familiar. And she was pretty much my age. I was 11. I think she couldn't have been more than 11 or 12. And so seeing this little girl performing in, on the stage in front of so many people really affected me and, and gave me sort of this new, new idea where I could get up there and I could do it if this little girl could do it. I'd done ballet, but I'd never done theater. So it, uh, it got the ball you know, in motion for me. And was there something about Les Miserables itself? Because that show touches on a lot of things about spirituality, forgiveness, um, anti-hero that becomes kind of like that. Uh, I don't know what the right word is, but like his arc changes, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. Because the funny thing is I saw Annie on that same trip and it was great. You know, you're 11 years old, you'd love to go see Annie, but I'm not a musical person. And I think that's why Les Mis appealed to me. It's not your traditional musical. There are so many darker, deeper themes and universal themes. And I really connected with the emotion of that show and the music is so beautiful that it wasn't this over the top musical, which actually, I, you know, there's sometimes those are fun to see as well, but it's not as much in line with what I enjoy. And so it's specifically Les Mis is still my favorite musical to this day, the soundtrack, everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, guilty confession. I definitely have it on my Spotify, like playlist, just the musical. And I was just go through it right. um, and, and so in looking through your background you've had a pretty varied experience you've done ballet you've done musical theater you've had training in singing you've been a model um you've uh you know you've made that trip to new york but you've mostly been based in san francisco and then now you're in la as you were sort of going through uh what sounds like maybe 10 to 20 years of your early like career and training like how did you decide where to spend your time yeah so I was very lucky growing up in San Francisco um, just outside of the city I first lived in San Francisco and then we moved to the East Bay so near near Berkeley Oakland and you know because you live in San Francisco there's just so much theater there's so many live performances there's a lot of creativity so initially I was just a very lucky little kid because I could take summer theater programs. I could go take classes at ACT as a 12 year old in in San Francisco, um, the American Conservatory Theater. I would go see summer Shakespeare shows at uh, Cal Shakes in Orinda. So I was just immersed in it and and had so many wonderful programs. And so I I, I went to college even, I stayed in Northern California and I actually would drive to ACT once a week, my senior year and take film acting classes to supplement my training. So I had so much at my fingertips. And then I always knew if I really wanted to pursue film and television, which I did from a young age, I would have to move to Los Angeles or New York. And being from California, uh, Los Angeles just seemed like the most logical, feasible place to move first and try out acting as a professional career. So I graduated, I went to UC Davis I then uh, did a program at the British American Drama Academy in Oxford that summer, and I had two weeks and I packed everything up and moved to Los Angeles and have been have been here ever since. My impression of LA is, especially compared to San Francisco or NorCal, it's like it's a grittier city, 
what was the transition like for you having especially like grown up in in, in northern california yeah um so i am such a northern california girl at heart obviously with the projects i've been working on right i try to incorporate it as much as i can I love going back up there and it took years for Los Angeles to grow on me and to find my people and the places I I would enjoy spending time and neighborhoods that I liked. It really did. And even to this day, it's funny because it felt like it happened suddenly after it took, it only took like 10 years, but (laughs) it felt like overnight, suddenly I realized that I had grown attached to parts of Los Angeles and how many like-minded people I'd met and how lucky I was. And I don't know if I could have I don't know what my life would have looked like if I'd stayed up there, but any chance I have to go back up there, I just, my heart is still very much in Northern California. So it hasn't been a seamless transition at all. It definitely was a gradual, gradual process to get used to living down here. Sounds like there was um, a little bit of struggle on your end just to like adjust to the city. Huge. Yeah. I remember, I remember going home. It was just very lonely initially, you know, and I don't know if people really talk about that as much. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, moving to Los Angeles. It's like all amazing going, you know, having that total LA experience. I did, I did have a lot of, you know, stereotypical, like you'd be going to a party when you move down here and see like a bunch of people that you'd recognize from TV and those things. But I think because I grew up in Northern California instead of another part of the country and I had grown up going into San Francisco all the time, right? So I wasn't from a small, small town, um, I was really just comparing it so much to the city experience I'd had and it was tough. Like it didn't have the architecture. It didn't have the beautiful nature. I mean, now I've grown to find, to find aspects of LA beautiful and, and really appreciate what it has to offer that Northern California doesn't, but yeah, it, it took a lot of, a lot of time to kind of like build my group of friends and a lot of effort and I think anywhere it takes a couple years right to really feel settled like it's like home but it was particularly challenging for me yeah um the loneliness comment was really interesting for for me to hear because uh like in the in the professions you've dealt into on paper at least there's like a perception of like there's a lot of attention on on you like either to the camera or like the people around you uh but but it sounds like there's more to it than just that yeah i i think especially when you're new and you don't have the connection so what you're doing is like in any any uh, career you're taking people to coffee and you're just trying to network and you're asking everybody who they know in entertainment and who you can kind of talk to to get some advice and some guidance and yeah, with moving down here, I had a couple friends initially who I grew up with who moved down who for the most part didn't last very long down here. They didn't like it either. And it's like furthering that awful NorCal, SoCal rivalry. And SoCal just doesn't care, but Northern California, <laughs> don't, they don't seem to stick in, in LA for very long. So yeah, aside from once I got into an acting class, that was like the, the night of the week I would look forward to the most because I would be surrounded by fellow actors and getting to connect and communicate but the rest of the week until I got you know some things off the ground and started getting some roles and and booking some things which is really the best way to meet people is working on projects and in class it just was a very slow process and people don't want to drive either they don't want to drive if you live on the west side and you know the people that you're in class with live on the east side they're not driving to you (laughs) yeah it's something and some of the people that listen to this show are in NorCal. And and yeah, when I, uh, I I rented a car and went to LA a few months back, it was definitely a different experience where I was like, oh, I thought I could just like go to this place that doesn't look that far on the map, but it's like 90 minutes later, I'm still I'm still not there. And and traffic is just, is just very different. Yeah, yeah. Um, how does San Francisco coffee compare to LA coffee? <laughs> you're asking the wrong person i have a, i have a <laughs> you can't see but i'm drinking a matcha <laughs> i'm so <laughs> um i i every once in a while i'll have a coffee but in full disclosure i'll like put a bunch of milk in it and yeah. i'm not a true diehard coffee drinker i think my parents would very much be partial to norcal coffee yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, hello 
I, I just because uh, you you said you were taking people out to coffee, so I was. I was oh uh, yeah, yeah. I was taking them out to coffee, and I was having a tea. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I've I, yeah, I've had phases in my career where I'm taking people out to coffee and definitely yeah. got sick of coffee after a while. You, yeah, and you just treat them to the coffee, and you're like, "It's on me, but yeah. please tell me everything you." Grab a water. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I even want this coffee. It's my yeah. third today. I just want yeah. to talk to you. Um, for for people who are considering a similar move to LA, right? Because uh, I think it's a very common thought for people who want to be in the creative arts. Are there things that you might share that might help their move as they're thinking about like just building relationships in the industry oh yes i know i could take up your whole time right now with things up as much as time as, as, as you want okay well um i wish that i i so i went to college for theater and american studies and from what i've heard from other people too their theater majors didn't really prepare them adequately for the business aspect of pursuing a career in entertainment. So we had this wonderful wealth of knowledge about playwrights and the history of theater and, and practical knowledge about acting, but nothing that translated to like, okay, how do I find a headshot photographer? You know, cause you need photos. And how am I going to put together my first acting reel, which are clips so you can demonstrate your skill? Um, and where do I find classes and that kind of thing? And I think a lot of actors uh, who moved to Los Angeles without, unless you went to USC or UCLA, you know, or a school that really has a strong network, that uh, alumni network that helps integrate you into the entertainment industry, um, you kind of have to figure it out yourself and you end up using a lot of resources that kind of prey on actors, unfortunately, like a lot of websites that will say like audition for, I don't know, like Game of Thrones. And it's not really an audition for Game of Thrones. It's like, maybe they have an extras casting call, which is a great way to start uh, with some extra roles. So, but, uh, but I think it's difficult to, to find your footing initially. So my biggest suggestions would be before you move down, number one, it's always good to try to get to be the biggest fish in a smaller pond. So wherever you're based, if you can get some experience under your belt, which I totally, aside from theater, I totally did not do this. I had no short film experience. I moved right after college. Like, so if I could go back, I would give myself this advice. But if you can film something with friends, you know, we all have these phones now with amazing cameras on them. So if you can even just like get a couple friends together and film a couple scenes, write something. I remember I did that when I moved to LA. I was lucky my friends from high school are filmmakers. And so I went, I wrote some scenes. We went up, I went up north and we filmed them. And that was my first acting reel. So anything that you can kind of get a head start, like start researching, like internet is so valuable. You can start looking up headshot photographers, Instagram, you know, like look up hashtags, headshots and see what people are posting and if you like any of those pictures and do a deep dive into headshot photographers. Um, classes, it's the same thing, you know, do your, do your research if you can online and look up top acting classes in LA. It's just, you don't want to get stuck on those blogs where it's kind of, you start to see the same names and some of it, maybe they're not the best, but they have like the best <laughs> budget mm. to advertise, you know? Um, but I, I think talking to a ton of people, again, the one thing that I did do that was helpful and my family helped with was just exhausting our network and finding out who, if we knew anybody in Los Angeles. Um, and in my case, I was really lucky because an 80-year-old cousin had a friend's son who was a, who was a director. So you never know who might know somebody, you know, six degrees separated from you who would sit down and talk to you for coffee or get on the phone and have a call with you. But I think as much as you can do before you move um, is really helpful. Obviously there's only so much you can do and it's good to be in a big network if you really are serious about getting into the industry. Um, and then the other thing I touched on was extra work. So initially I had never been on a film or TV set, right? And so instead of just thinking, oh, theater is gonna translate, take classes, but also, do extra work. Um, and you can do that. I think central casting is still around and it's pretty inexpensive. You sign up for their system. 
they, you put a couple of headshots in their database. I'm sure it's different. Like I had to take an actual hard copy headshot and, and wait in line and like give it to them and they scanned it. Sure. It's way more streamlined now, but I got calls, you know, as a, to be a double on, I remember my first thing was like CSI, one of the CSIs, like CSI Miami or something. And I was a double for a day and you can just be on a set and listen. And I did another one for a show called Eastwick and they brought me back a couple of times and it actually got me my, my SAG card. Um, so there's, there's different ways where you can kind of dip your toe in and get a little bit of experience. Don't feel like overnight you should be, you know, on the next CW show. It's, it's a long process of chipping away. Although some people are like some people, you know, come in and they see success right away, but yeah, lots of lots of options and things to do. It also sounds like you had a couple of situations where people or organizations like must took advantage of you is the sense I'm getting. How can people like filter better for like what's a legit like opportunity versus something that's more of a uh, yeah. scam? I, I was lucky. I think I was pretty savvy. So there wasn't anything that was like an outright, like bad, take advantage of situation. The only things I went to a headshot photographer initially, who was like voted number one by backstage magazine. And that's one of the resources that's not particularly my favorite. I'm sorry, backstage. Um, there's other, there's other resources that are, that are going to be better for you. Um, and I went to that photographer and it was not a good match. So that's why I think don't just jump for like, who's listed as like the number one photographer. They might not be the right photographer for you. Um, and another, another thing I also came off backstage, unfortunately, someone was designing websites and it was a columnist for them. And they, it was actually a gimmick. Like they weren't really designing actor websites. They were taking people's money. So just, just, those are some of the situations, just be a little bit do your research, you know, again, and everyone, everyone falls into one of those traps at one point or another, um, and take the time to like find the best photographer, take the time to find the best class. You can sit in for free in a lot of these classes. You can, you know, email the photographer and get a feel for, for how they work. There's, there's no limit in, in terms of reaching out to people before you make a decision and spend money. The other thread that you mentioned you mentioned a couple of times uh, and I'd like to get into a little bit is you said you also majored in American studies yeah tell us more about that <laughs> that ended up being my favorite major <laughs> I knew I knew that I was going to be an actor but I had all these extra credits that I could take and so I was kind of shopping around for a second major I was thinking psychology for a while. And then a friend of mine was in American studies and I didn't know what that was. Um, funny enough, my dad was an American studies major. <laughs> he always did history because no one seems on the East coast, it's big, but on the West coast, no one really knows what it is. So he would say he was a history major, but it's a combination of it's like anthropology, sociology, psychology. It's, I like to say it's like NPR as a major. <laughs> So you can kind of focus on different aspects of American culture and analyze like, why are things the way they are? Why do we behave this way? Why do, you know, what does this symbolize in American culture? Um, it's really seriously like all the stories you hear on NPR and you could design your own major with that. And the classes were small. So that was hands down the teachers, the professors were phenomenal. I, I loved that at UC Davis, it was, that was the best. And how did you end up designing your major? Um, I kind of combined uh, the my theater major with American studies. So I was interested in, you know, our obsession. Part of it was actually, I remember writing a paper on our obsession with these like Los Angeles based reality TV shows. Why, why is there such a market for that? Um, what's the fascination with that? And then uh, my thesis ended up being in, uh, there was a lot of devised theater at UC Davis, which if you if you haven't and I know you're involved in the arts so you might know but if for anyone listening it's um it's kind of where like an ensemble will get together and kind of devise a piece with a director just like the name and come up with the piece out of group meetings and discussions and write something together compared to like a traditional play right like we were talking about Les Mis so Les Mis obviously has a script has a score and sure you can have a different take on Les Mis but Les Mis is Les Mis this is like 
we could come up with anything you and me right now and then put on a play. And they were doing a lot of that at Davis. And I was frustrated that I wasn't feeling adequately prepared for, for the business career side um, in acting. And I wanted to do more of the traditional plays too and have that training, that foundation. So I wrote a thesis on basically like <laughs> some of the, the pitfalls of not adequately um, preparing students for a real life career in entertainment, like some of the other majors might prepare a student for an actual career in their field. And through it, I worked with a devised theater artist who was there um, on campus. We had different guest artists. And it really was eye-opening too, to see the perspective of what's beneficial of doing devised theater. And it's not just this traditional route that I had been raised to do, you know, there's a benefit from doing a combination of both. Do I still feel like there need to be business classes? Yes. <laughs> Uh, but I was able to combine both majors, but look at it through an American studies lens. And that was really interesting to me and also empowering that as a student, I could kind of voice my thoughts on how the program was run in, um, in like an intel and, you know, an educational way that wasn't just like, here are the pitfalls, but um, I learned a lot as well. Cool. I want to fast forward in time a little bit and um, talk about uh, the work you've done on Westworld. So you play the character of Lindsay. Uh, walk us through how you got that opportunity. So after, after many years, um, the goal when you move to Los Angeles, right, is to get an agent and a manager or one or the other, you don't need both. And so I have an agent and I got that role from a self tape, which most auditions now are tapes. Uh, casting will send your agent or manager uh, a request. First, you have to be submitted by, by your reps for the role. So my agent would say, okay, she fits, she fits the part of Lindsay, um, submit me. And then casting, if they think that you align with what, they want to see for the role, they'll request an audition. So that came through my agent. Um, and it was, I did it at home, a self-tape. It's it was, you know, still pandemic days in 2021. I mean, we're still in pandemic days, but now everything's pretty much remote. So I auditioned on tape. Um and, and just to, so listeners can visualize yeah. this, you put a camera in like your room apartment and then did an audition at that point our one bedroom apartment yeah so <laughs> I, yeah you would have you know you have a backdrop and you use your phone some people use the camera but your phone works and uh have a reader so my husband he's an actor too so he usually reads with me and uh they're reading the lines off camera and you audition we had two scenes i believe for that one um, and then you just cut them together and send them to your agent and they'll send them back to casting and they'll watch your tape. So sometimes they'll ask you, they'll do like a callback. Um, uh, but in this case, I really, cause I thought Westworld's a long shot. Like I would love to be on this show, but I've been doing this long enough where I know, like, you know, just do the work and forget about it. And then a few weeks later, crazy enough, I got a call from my agent that I was on hold for the role. So we didn't do a callback. Um, but I was the only one on hold for the role. And then 20 minutes later, they booked me. So it was wild because there was no callback. There was no in-person table read. There was, there was really just that self-tape a couple weeks later. And then I had a week until I needed to be on set uh, filming. That's, uh, that's crazy. And it's very, it sounds like there's, there's, there's a there's level of arbitrariness, like how things work and like who gets the role and, and, and to say that you didn't work for it but but yeah. Uh, the, I, yeah it lines up I think it's funny you know because you do so many auditions and and you don't hear anything because they can't possibly get back to everybody who's auditioned um, and it was a good lesson as to you know as long as you're doing good work and you're you're putting in the time then if the if it lines up and you fit the part it really is so true if you align with what they saw for the part and you did quality work that's when you know who knows but and it was a really amazing moment for sure to find out that I, I had booked it. And so now you're on the set, you're working with the cast. What kinds of things did you learn uh, being with uh, the cast of Westworld? Well, for one, I mean, it's 
they're working at the highest level of professionalism on that show. Obviously, it's a huge show. The budget is massive. It's HBO. All the actors are these just renowned, incredibly talented household name actors. Um, but at the same time, it's funny. It's still the same as when you're doing. There's some. There's there's something very similar about doing a small community theater play that is in line with doing Westworld. It sounds crazy, but you're still working on a project together. There's the crew, there's the cast. You're all working together to create this, this piece. So even though it's on a different scale and there's maybe higher stakes involved, there's a lot of parallels and it, funny enough, it ends up feeling very familiar, you know? Um, and yeah, working with that cast, I just have never been more prepared in all my life. So I didn't <laughs> I did not want to be the weakest link or forget a line, but you see that people do go up on lines and it's fine. You know, it's not, uh, you don't have to be perfect as long as you're prepared and, um, and you're present and you've done the work that that was a really interesting lesson too. There's certainly actors on that show that do not miss a beat. And then there's other actors who approach it from a more relaxed place. So it was good to see, to get to work with a variety of people on the show and get to see how everyone works differently. And it was, it was just really awe-inspiring and amazing. Which archetype do you think you fall into? Oh, I am definitely the intellectual prepare, prepare, prepare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of like fear that I'm going to, you know, mess, mess it up. I, I will know it forwards, backwards in my sleep, um, which is good and bad because sometimes that's good because it lets you let go of it and you can just have the freedom to play. And sometimes you overthink it. So it's, you know get to be aware so you've uh produced uh acted an acting in the up upcoming film called into the valley the few I've, I've lots of questions around that but but maybe you could start by telling us what into the valley is about sure so into the valley um is actually based on a novel by ruth gong it's set in 1967 san francisco and follows a, a law secretary beverly who is now going by b who quits her day job and begins and buys a mustang and begins robbing a series of banks in the sacramento valley with counterfeit checks and um i wrote the screenplay originally i optioned the rights to ruth's book and I adapted it into a full-length feature screenplay. And when that route was tough to attach funding to, I ended up turning it into a short. So this is the 20 minute short uh, version of the feature. And this takes place all in the Sacramento Valley. And you're kind of dropped in to the main character robbing a bank and you follow her along through the valley until she picks up a hitchhiking teenage girl. How did you find the novel? So I, my mom had gotten like a free subscription to Elle magazine and I'm not a huge magazine person, but they have a wonderful book review section. And so I was looking at the, the book reviews and I read a little synopsis about Into the Valley. So it had been reviewed in Elle magazine and it sounded like the kind of film I would love and it also was set where I grew up. And so I immediately sought out the book and, and read the book. I already kind of had an idea like it would be good for a film. And then when I read it, it was just like wonderfully satisfying because I could really see it as a movie. So even from just from just a description, you had an intuition that, hey, this could be a really cool film that you want to work on. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you see, so you read uh, the book and then I'm assuming you reach out to Ruth introduced yourself like how, how did that interaction and first meeting go great question yeah so I the here's where research comes in again right I I found Ruth she has a, a writing website and she had her email on there and so I emailed her directly I I this worked for me and I I highly recommend it if you can reach out to the author instead of the publisher initially if you're interested in optioning a book um, I was able to just write her directly who I was, why I loved her book, what I intended to do with it or hope to do with it. And uh, I got actually a response back from her publisher. So she'd sent it along to her publisher and they had reached out to me. And then after that, Ruth got back to me and we ended up having a phone call. And from there, the publisher put me in touch with their, um, their representatives, their legal representatives to discuss with them why I thought I was qualified to do this and 
and also agree on an option agreement. So there were many steps, but it started with reaching out to Ruth. Are you comfortable sharing like how much money was exchanged for like this option agreement? Because I think a lot of people hear this and they're like, what does that mean? Yeah. What, is, what does the business side look like? Yeah, well, it just varies on the project. So if you wanted to option, you know, the books like for the Hunger Games, right, then that's going to be one cost. But if you want to option like a little children's book that had like a limited release, then that's going to be far less expensive. So it can vary, you know, you can option. I think Stephen King gives the option of uh, you can option his his writing, his short stories for like a dollar, I, I believe. <laughs> Um, so it, it can be a dollar or it can be, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Probably it just depends on the intellectual property. And if this is like a New York times bestselling author, and this is their sixth book, then it's going to be a little more challenging for somebody like me to get the rights to that. But a huge production company has the funds to do it and the means to do it and they can. So it aligned for sure that this was, um, like an independent novel, um, as well, and it was the first novel for for this author. I think that helped a ton. If I'd been reaching out to somebody who was super well established, I don't know if a they would they would take my call, and it would be a lot more costly. So it was definitely something that was reasonable with with my budget um, and affordable. But yeah, the range can be all over the place for optioning. And I'm assuming before you you read this novel, you you probably had um, a thought about maybe writing a script from scratch. Where did you land on like okay, now I actually want to build up on someone else's work versus like writing something of your own from scratch? It's a great question. Um, yeah, so I that's where the story analyst part of me comes into play. So I, I was kind of outlining and I had ideas that I was kicking around for writing something myself. I'd written like little shorts, but nothing too serious. And I had one idea that was a, a dramatic um, thriller, but it was challenging to just sit and write. Um, and I read so many scripts as a story analyst for different production companies and agencies. And I also read for the film director I, I worked for. And I would read books, especially for one, I worked for Alcon Entertainment and their production company, and they would send me books to consider for optioning. So I had that seed planted in my brain that you could read a book and see it as a film and reach out to them. Um, and I thought it might be an easier place to start as, you know, less ambitious, which is funny because it's just a different, it's different, just a different muscle, you know, like it's still <laughs> adapting something is challenging in its own way. Uh, when you're writing yourself, there's no rules, you know, you can, you can come up with anything, but when you're adapting it, you don't want to lose the story. You don't want to overwrite things, translating literature into a screenplay. You have to cut so much of the description. So I learned a, a lot doing that to the point where I'm excited to like sit down and write a screenplay myself where I don't have to like go back and make sure, okay, did I leave out the right part? Like, should I have added that in because there's a, a book that exists, um, but it was a great challenge. And I think it was, for me at least, it was a really good place to start, a good exercise to start with writing um, a script that length. Yeah, because I, I imagine like Ruth, like she's she obviously had the vision for the book and then you have this experience in film and like translating something visually. Were there parts of the plot where you and Ruth had like a back and forth in terms of like how to, how to like be true to the vision, but then communicate it visually? Yes, so Ruth is is the most wonderful author. I, I don't know if, again, everyone would be so lucky to have this experience. I hope so, but I she really has kind of functioned as an editor for me. So I did all the writing and then I would send her a draft and say, hey, like, what do you think about this? I don't know how to do the flashbacks. I might I might cut them out. Like, how do you feel about this? I'd send- Is I'd there send an example you could provide that, that one? Yeah. Yeah. So it will. So one thing, there's this whole section of her book where the main character be um, flashbacks to college. And I was trying to keep it intact, but it's very challenging to do flashbacks in a film. I'm sure you've seen many, many films and TV shows that do flashbacks and many that do them well and many that don't do them so well. And so it was slowing down in the book. It works magnificently, but in the script, 
those flashbacks were kind of slowing down the plot. And, you know, even though she is, she's robbing banks, you want to have some momentum going here. It's a drama first and foremost, but there is a thriller aspect. So I, I had a conversation with her about that. And I remember making the decision to cut um, the college flashbacks. And there was a location, I don't know if you've ever been to the nut tree. Um, so the nut tree is on the drive between San Francisco and Tahoe. It's in Vacaville, just before Sacramento, near, near UC Davis. And we would stop there as like when I was a kid, we'd stop on the way to visit family and on the way to Tahoe. It's since changed. It's now more of like a, a mall, but it was this really quaint restaurant with a train and like a candy shop and all this cool stuff. And when I read the book, I couldn't believe the nut tree was in it because it was this, you know, personal spot that I've been to as a kid and it had so much um, nostalgia for me, but it just didn't fit. I had to kill it. I had to like, kill my darling with the nut tree. I had to cut it out of the, the feature, at least the way that I was, I was writing it. I still have an ode to it, which if you read it, you'll see like it's, it's in there. Um, but things like that, where I would talk to Ruth and she was so understanding that this was like a new iteration of her book. She was never precious about any, I think I was more precious than she was. She's like, no, you know, whatever you think, like that works for me. But for me, I'm like, I can't cut the nut tree and I cut the nut tree. So there's a couple of examples. Yeah, because it sounds like you and the author had like a very personal connection to that. Yeah. And and did you have to cut it up because it was part of the flashback scene and it that wasn't working, so you got that, cut out? That one, funny enough, wasn't. It's just that, um, you know, and the book format works so differently. And in the book, uh, B stops at so many more places along her drive. And at a certain point in the script, like each place she has to stop at has to really propel her to the next place. It can't be like, otherwise, again, the momentum starts starts to lag if she's just stopping and stopping and stopping. So uh, there were only so many like stops that I could really put in there and I had to pick and choose uh, the meaning behind the places that she does choose to stop at. And that one I could kind of weave in more to an object instead of the actual location. And in the actual film itself, do you play B? In the short, I do, yeah, yeah. So that was the other reason I wanted to option it initially. I might be jumping on your question, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I wasn't getting auditions for roles that were, that were like meaty three-dimensional female characters. Uh, I was getting like roles that just felt very two-dimensional, still grateful to have the auditions, but not so satisfying for me as an actor. And so, um, when I read this book, I thought, oh my God, I'd love to play this role. Like there's so much depth to this character and I relate to her. Um, so that was another, another aspect of it that appealed was to get to play B. I know when it's a feature, like who knows, you know, if, if I'm lucky enough to get it purchased and made into a feature, I don't know that I would still be B. Um, but yeah, that was because, well, just when, when movies are made, like obviously they need to make money in some form. I wish it wasn't that way, but like anything, so small we... problem with, yeah, no problem <laughs> until I'm a household name. Yeah. Um, they might want to go with like a name actor for, for that role. You know, they may not. And same with the director. Like sometimes they'll go with a name director um, just to, to attract more of an audience. But that can also be um, in a different role as well. So it doesn't have to be the main part. But it was great to, to actually be able to play the, the part for the short. Yeah. How did you get into that mindset? So the, the protagonist robs banks. Uh, don't know everything about you, but I'm assuming you've never robbed a bank. So like, how did you get into that like mindset of someone who uh, does something like that? I think understanding the motivation behind it, understanding, you know, for every character you want to be in their shoes and understand what drives them to do what they do. You know, actors play murderers, right? And it's hard to kind of justify why somebody would kill someone else. But if you, if you at least get into their head as to, why did they feel the need to do that? So why did B feel like this is the only option? Why is she, why is she going this route? Um, and I could, I could see like the source of her, um, I could see where she ended up where, where she does, you know, I could see the little things along the way that led her to take this path, even though it might not be something that I, <laughs> Emily would go do. Um, I understood that feeling of like wanting to get out of the city and just like not feeling like you necessarily fit the mold of everybody around you and just going a different path. So I, I related to that. 
it sounds like digging into you mentioned the motivations of the character like helped you understand and i'd imagine like adapting the novel probably helped with that because you were like working with a writer and 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 creating the so script much. I know the funny thing is like all the prep you want to just be focused on your part as an actor like I was for Westworld right but in Westworld I wasn't producing and writing and doing all this other stuff I could just show up and be an actor that day so for the short all my prep really came from the years and years and years of adapting the book into the script and just getting to know that character intimately rereading the book talking to Ruth about the character we've talked extensively about the different roles um, and then when it came time to do it I, my brain had to be so much in the producing side everything moves so quickly that I it was it was a challenge to take the time and also um, you know the time I would like that I'm used to working on the acting side of it um, I had to split with producing so actually when you mentioned that for some reason I thought this process of adapting the novel to a script in my head I was like six months to a year but you it sounds like it took longer than that Yes. Yeah, it took it took multiple years. I mean, the first draft didn't. The first draft probably took a couple months, but uh, I was doing it the whole time, you know, working full time as well, and and also having an acting career. So it's sort of like doing three things at once, like my job, job, auditions, and acting, and and finding the time to write. So everything just gets stretched out and takes longer where I would love to just be have my whole day where I could just sit and write. Hopefully that's the goal, right? Um, just to write an act, but uh, it took a, a few years and just getting feedback, going back and forth, getting other other writers and mentors of mine to weigh in and give notes. I did a table read at one point with a bunch of friends who were actors just to hear everything out loud. So it took a while to, to fine tune it. I think there's some people who write at a faster rate and there's some people who like like to take their time and, and probably somewhere in between, but, um, but yeah, it was it took many years to get to get it to where it is now. Yeah. On the trailer, uh, there is a Wild West feeling to the shots. And I'm curious because you have that American studies like background. Like, is there something you were trying to depict about America or California in that feeling of the landscape shots? Yeah, I think I just love Americana. Obviously, American studies major. Thank you for <laughs> making that connection. What does Americana mean? For people who don't know what that means. So yeah, sort of that like old West, like open land, kind of being in, in touch with nature, frontier. Um, there's something just wild about it, inherently wild about it. And it's always been fascinating to me. I've always been drawn to it. I love um, movies and films that, it, that are connected to nature. I remember reading A River Runs Through It as a kid and then seeing that film and just the way like that landscape was integrated into it um, has always been a draw to me. But yeah, specifically the West, I don't know if it's because I'm from California, but I've always just loved the idea of going out on the open road, like going for a drive, open space, nature, and that's always been appealing to me. So that is not an accident, I think, as to why I was attracted to this, to my American studies major, and then why you have that feel, um, that feel in the trailer too. Yeah, there's a sense of almost spirituality in those like shot and even the way you were describing it. Yeah, there is. It's so true. And I think I feel calm and grounded and the most spiritual for sure when I'm out in open space and, and you know, so there's nothing like just seeing open land and sky and it's it's really um, like therapeutic for me. Yeah. And in, in, in the film, are you playing someone who is calmed by this? Because it sounds like the character is going through a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if she's calmed by anything. No, <laughs> she's calmed actually by the banks. That's uh, one place where she feels safe. And I think it's because there's order. There's no change. It's still very old fashioned and simple. And she feels almost like if, you know, you go into a department store and there's elevator music playing and everything's neatly folded and it's like a nice fresh scent. Like I think she feels a sense of calm and order in the banks and in the outside world. There's 1967, so many changes True. and she's not fitting in with the new hippie movement and she's, and there's a civil rights movements going on. And she also doesn't relate to her traditional peers who are just getting married and having babies and not having careers. So she's, 
She's in this very weird, um, you know, isolated place. And you are also on a level making commentary on gender roles. Mm-hmm. Women don't, well, in stereotypes, women don't rob banks and they don't go on solo road trips. So say, say more about that. Yeah, I think that's what struck me the most. So when I first read the book, it, right afterwards, um, you know, not to get too political, but it <laughs> was when Trump got elected and there were all the, the women's marches. And I think there was a lot of emotion bubbling up, especially for women in this country and minorities and, you know, a lot of concern. And um, I I had always felt like I didn't, I, I didn't sort of fit the gender norms. Like I never really, I didn't like going to people's baby showers. I didn't like going to engagement parties. I'm, I love, you know, going to weddings and things like that, but I, I just didn't feel like celebrating those things. I cared more about, um, the other things that somebody was up to, like, or at least equally weighed them like, oh, this is such a cool job that you just got, you know, or what an amazing project that you've done. And so I didn't always relate to my peers in that way. And then the whole women, uh, the women's march. And of course, now with Roe v. Wade, um, it does, it really calls attention to the fact that there's a whole group of people in this country that are a little bit threatened to, with, um, threatened by, women in power (laughs) and women kind of stepping outside of that gender role that we've had for so long, even though so much has changed and there's been so much progress, it still is there. So I still feel, um, and I know I've I've written this, like if I go on a a drive alone and I drive the five all the time to go up to Northern California, um, I have no problem doing it, but I'm always kind of looking over my shoulder when I'm by myself, um, you know, just always kind of have one eye open to pay attention to my surroundings if anybody is like approaching me or anything like that. And I don't know, maybe some of it's just ingrained in me, but I think a lot of women feel that way. Like when you walk to your car and you hold your keys a certain way and it's dark at night, um, just to always be aware and on edge. And so clearly uh, not, a, not enough has, has changed. And, um, and it was really highlighted in this book from the 1960s about her book about the 1960s, um, about a woman traveling alone back then and how she was perceived by not just men, but by other women. I know we are running close to our, our mark. Do you have time to go over? Yeah, I can go. Okay, cool. Uh, how did the team for this come together? Um, gradually. So I first approached uh, Emily Sandifer. She was our wonderful director. I had reached out to her. She's a photographer and she'd done my photos. And I had always just felt like there was something in line with us. I loved her work and her work is very much the same, lives in the same world of um, of Into the Valley, but it's lots of beautiful landscape. She just shoots people in, in natural settings, um, incredibly, like where you feel emotion looking at, at her picture. She also does great editorial work. She can do it all, but particularly I loved her shots, uh, out in nature. And so I'd reached out to her and I thought maybe she would know a female cinematographer or director. And I didn't know that she had done, um, some directing and some work herself. And she said, can I throw my hat in the ring? Like, I, I'd like to do this. Can I read the script and just take a look at it and see? And it was just like meant to be truly, it felt like the perfect fit. So she started on the project um, at the beginning of last summer. And so I had Emily and then she had a a cinematographer in mind. We were trying to find as many women as possible to fill out the crew, uh, which which it's a good thing, but so many women are working (laughs) right now because there is this shift that it was tough to to find uh, women for all roles. But uh, we did have a female first AD, um, we did have like a, a pretty decent balance, but our DP uh, ended up being a guy named John Pears. DP stands for? A director of photography. Yeah, director of photography, also known as cinematographer. So he specializes, he's done incredible commercial work, especially, and he wanted to get more into film and TV, but he specializes in, in like these high-end car shoots. He's a master of filming moving vehicles and incredible with light. So because so much of this takes place in this 1960, I think it's the 1966 Mustang, um, we really needed someone who felt 
comfortable handling the equipment around a car and filming in the car and outside the car. And so he ended up being, being a great fit for that. And luckily he was interested in working on it. And then um, through that, I tried to find as many local crew as possible. So ideally I wanted to hire as many people from the Sacramento area, cast and crew um, as I could so that we weren't just showing up with a whole Los Angeles crew. It ended up providing a bit of a challenge because you know there's just so many more people in a market like Los Angeles and Sacramento is a small market, but we did our art department came from Sacramento, uh, wardrobe came from San Francisco, locations came from Sacramento. Um, we had, you know, PAs and interns from Sacramento, sound from Lodi. Like, so we did have a mix. Uh, it was, I wouldn't say it's maybe like 60, 40 LA Sacramento. Um, and then the cast, the majority of the cast also was local between the Bay area and Sacramento, which was wonderful. Cause I just, I thought we found the best people and it was really cool that they were pretty much all locals. And what got them attracted to your project? I think that the, it was interesting to see that the message of the film and the style of the film resonated with so many different people from different backgrounds. I think they thought it was ambitious <laughs> and a, a unique concept. They liked the female anti-hero aspect. They also liked that it was being filmed. Of course, you know, it's a local project. So even though I live in LA, I, my parents live outside Sacramento. My mom's, my mom grew up in Sacramento. Her whole family was in Sacramento. Um, obviously I grew up in the Bay area. So I, I think having somebody come back from Los Angeles and really intentionally have as many people local as possible working on it was another huge appeal. Not just like, Hey, we're filming here, but here's all of our LA actors. You know, um, I think, I think that got them excited too. And the locations, I have to say, I did some pretty cool locations scouting, <laughs> a little pat myself on the back, but I would be up there all the time visiting my parents. So every time my husband and I would go, we would just kind of cruise around and find a new small town and drive into it, you know, a new uh, countryside. And so we found the coolest locations. And I think that appealed a lot to the, the people who worked on the project too. And, and location scouting is you're just going to these places and then seeing if they'll be a good fit for different like shots in the film. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So um, for example, like we needed some small town setups, uh, some main streets and a diner and a laundromat. So going to some of these small towns and looking for banks and laundromats and diners and seeing if anything could pass for the 1960s, because again, our budget, even though we've raised uh, like $50,000, it, it sounds like a lot, but it goes like, so quickly when you have that many people we had like 30 people working on this and you have to pay everyone and feed everyone and house everybody so um trying to find places that already looked the part instead of having to spend more money to dress them up um, which we still had to do you know in some instances with art department they did a great job but um it was really fun to go look at these spots and then we handed them over to our location manager and he did all the reach outs to the businesses to see if they would be open to filming cool and then on that note, so you did decide to crowdfund um, the film. And as of this recording, you're 99% there. So you said mm -hmm. it goes for $50,000. And uh, I think I checked today and it said 453, but I think you were about $100 away. Uh, so congratulations. Uh, what made you, well, let's start with what made you decide to go down that route? Yeah, I think there wasn't another option. You know, I had tried to to approach um, producers and financiers like just a little bit. And and number one, no one will fund a short. I mean, maybe I that's, that's too like definitive, but it's hard to get a short film funded uh, when you don't have anything else to show like a previous film. Maybe if I did another film after this, it might be a little bit easier, but usually funding's for feature films. So in this case, the most common route to go is through crowdfunding, which made me cringe a bit because I've lived in LA for a while. Everyone crowdfunds, you know, you, so many people are crowdfunding. So it was important for us if we were going to crowdfund um, to approach it in a way that, that aligned with us. And, and at least for me, like felt, I didn't feel icky. So that first started off by um, using Seed and Spark as our platform, which is specifically only for film. So I didn't want to be on platforms where someone is raising funds for a medical condition or, you know, because to compare that, it's like, 
will obviously, you know, help somebody with their medical condition. Like this is, this is art, but it's not life and death. So I wanted it to be in the right, in its, in its own lane, you know? So we use Seed and Spark and such an incredible platform started by Emily Best. And they really give you a whole guide as to how to crowdfund. So I'd never done it before. And they, they screen every single project. So they won't give you the go ahead to post the project until you've, you know, ticked all the boxes and you're adequately prepared, which is such a service to us because, and it's free to us uh, as filmmakers, because it really makes sure that you have all your ducks in a row and that you've done your due diligence and have the best presentation possible that's airtight before you put it out there and ask for funds from your community. So they were amazing. And, um, and we did our first campaign before we filmed and our goal was 35,000. I mean, raised 41,500. It was like astonishing to me, <laughs> the level of support. And I think it's because one, we were so excited about it. And we, instead of saying, Hey, we need your help. Like we need, we need this, like coming from a place of desperation. It was more like, this is exciting. We've been working on this for years. Like we would love it if you could join us and that shift, that perspective shift in anything, right. That versus fear versus, you know, Hey, we're going to do this. And we'd love for you to be there, like to be part of it makes people want to want to sign up. And so, um, that was overwhelming and, incredibly grateful and then very scary to go back and ask a lot of those same people to fund our post-production campaign because everyone had given so much you know um but we we've gotten there <laughs> were there uh, so i'm saying congratulations that's that's amazing um mm-hmm. it sounds like one of the things that worked for you was you know you weren't needy or desperate were there other tactical things that i'm just thinking of other people who might think about running campaigns like this like what would you advise them? I think it's important, you know, not every film has a message. I think nowadays most projects do just because of the world we're living in. So I think it's really important to to lean on that. You know, for us, it was pretty awful when Roe v. Wade got overturned and horrifying. And so to have uh, a project like this that is, you know, female filmmakers, myself, Emily and Ruth at the helm, um, a novel written by a woman about a female anti-hero that's addressing uh, these concerns in, in sort of um, a in subtext throughout the project. At least the the timing of that, um, I think it makes people feel like they can they can do something like affect some kind of change or be part of something that that has a greater message. So what, regardless of what your message is, I think it's important to be specific about why you're making this film. Like why, why this film? Why did you decide to make this film instead of something else? Um, and then I think making it fun and creative. Our, we were set in the 1960s, even though our film has a lot of dark themes, coming up with some fun ways to promote it, um, to you know thank people. Just the 1960s have like endless, endless things we could draw from. So even like from our Instagram thank yous, you know, having different images from the 1960s along with like a song from the 1960s for a thank you. We just did stickers. We did postcards. That was my favorite, like handwritten postcards from the characters for a certain amount of a pledge. Those were really fun to write. Um, Yeah. So just kind of coming up with creative things that are interactive and not necessarily like, hey, buy this t you know, if you spend $50, we'll give you a t-shirt. Like, making it a little more personal. The postcards were in line with our project and, yeah. you know, and were more personal. So get creative. Well, Emily, it was such a pleasure to have you on this uh, podcast. A few questions. So where can people find out more about um, this project? How can they see it when it's ready? And then I know you're working on a couple of other things that are still yet to be revealed. So maybe you could speak to them as appropriate. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, we are wrapping up the campaign. So by the time this comes out, I think we will be finished with that. Um, But you can still find us. Our Instagram for Into the Valley is at Into the Valley Film. Um, That's that's our best social media page. We're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Twitter, we're ITV Film and Facebook, it's Into the Valley. Um, But if you do want to contribute or you just want to follow along, the best place to do that is on our on our Instagram. And then you, you can also see the link to our Seed and Spark page. So even though the campaign will eventually be closed, you can still follow it and get updates 
on where we are in the post-production process. And once we finish the campaign, we're moving straight into hiring a composer and sound, a sound mixer and finishing it up to submit to festivals for next year. So uh, a lot of fun stuff coming up with that. And then um, in August, I was lucky enough to finally book a role on a, on a TV show that actually filmed in San Francisco, which was the dream. I'd like to be up there filming something for longer, but it was really fun. I got to go film. It's a new Apple TV plus show uh, that Hello Sunshine is doing, Reese Witherspoon's company. And it's based on a novel. It's a limited series and it should be out early next year. So I can share more soon, I hope. <laughs> but uh, you'll see me pop up on that show a couple of times. Great. And and you mentioned how to, how to follow your uh, current film, but you also have a website where people can follow your more yes. personal Updates, right? Yes, thank you for that. I'm terrible at self-promotion. Um, so <laughs> I can promote really nothing. But how do people find out about this new show? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I have a website, yes, which is emilyann with an e, summers.com. Um, that is my professional website. So you can always follow me along there and you can reach out via my contact form, which I believe is how we we met, right? Yes. She, um, she, does, she does respond to the contact form. I do respond, yes. Yeah. So that's a great way to keep in touch and kind of keep up on, on my latest uh, work, what I'm doing. A couple of announcements as this podcast comes to an end. The first is I am starting negotiation coaching. And if you find value in some of the content I put around negotiation uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter or if you're on my Substack, just respond to an email and we can we can chat the other announcement is I am looking for ambassadors to help promote the podcast and in return I am going to be offering some swag so if that is of interest, again, you can message me on Twitter. My handle is at S-A-S-A-D-B. Or again, you can, uh, if you're on my Substack, just respond to my email and we'll set up time to chat. <laughs>